know, people complain about what the internet has done to culture, but I do think the fact that people don't just sit around quoting Anchorman all day long is an improvement, because that's what life was like in 2004. about where every so often we prove that we know a third person (laughs) i am michael hobbs i'm a reporter for the huffington post i'm sarah marshall i'm working on a book about the satanic panic and if you want to support the show we're on patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about and many other places in the description and we have a special guest today hi how are you hi eric michael garcia is one of our favorite journalists he writes for everyone he's one of those people that just in his bio is like, Eric has written four, and then they list like 51 publications that you've been reading. <laughs> and you're like, National Geographic's in there? What? And importantly for this episode, he also has a book coming out entitled mm-hmm. We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. And he is here to talk about vaccines and autism. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Aww. Michael and I DMs about politics, Sarah and I DM <laughs> about pop culture, and I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a Patreon supporter. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm that serious. Getting them bonus episodes, yeah. Well, and I think of you as someone who I get to see in the, like, high school proxy <laughs> that is Twitter. It's like prom. It's just constant prom in there. I don't think it's prom. I think it's just, like, a regular day, and you're just like, I'm tired, and I gotta do fucking lacrosse, and none of my actions seem to have consequences but we're here and we're making jokes about it. I say a lot of times that like when I'm on Twitter, like there's always really, really serious stuff going on in the news. Michael's yelling about it. I'm yelling about it. And then like Sarah is usually just like, oh, I'm watching old episodes of NCIS or Perry Mason. And it's like, this really makes me happy. Oh, Eric, I'm so happy to have you on here because I feel as if like all of this moral panic stuff, All of this epidemiology of misinformation stuff is like, I hate to say it, but maybe more relevant right now than it has been in a while in just a very horribly obvious way. And this, what, what we're talking about with you today, I think is a really important kind of a keystone within, within this whole zeitgeist that we're unfortunately trying to punch our way out of, I guess. Yeah, that's that. I mean, I appreciate you saying that what I have to say is relevant. (laughs) Autism and misinformation is kind of the canary in the coal mine for a lot of the Mm. disinformation that we're seeing now. Mm. There are many ways that what happened with our understanding of autism illustrates how misinformation, the age of misinformation is really happening these days Mm. in a lot of other ways. This sounds great. Set set us off, Eric. Should we start with sort of what is autism and just sort of laying the table for what we're actually talking about? Yeah. So let's start with a really, really rudimentary discussion about autism. Autism is a disability that affects everybody from myself to people who can't speak to people who are kind of in the middle, one to two percent roughly is estimated to be autistic and one and as of right now we know at least between one in 68 and one in 50 children are autistic Mm -hmm. but the problem is that because the story of autism has gone through so many filters Mm -hmm. a lot of what we know about autism has been misunderstood wrong or distorted throughout oh. history in the public life. That would be unprecedented in the story of, of medicine <laughs> and psychology. So yeah, yeah, yeah. where do you place the beginning of the story? Because I think like where a story begins is something that can be 
specific to the teller. If you really want to be generous, you go back to 1908 and like 1911. Great. When Eugen Bloiler, who was, I believe, a Swiss psychiatrist, hmm. he saw autism. He labeled it as a trait of schizophrenia. Hmm. As a result, for a long time, you'll see kind of autism and childhood schizophrenia being kind of used interchangeably. Hmm. You can't understand how we understand autism today without going to Baltimore, Maryland in the 1930s and 1940s and Nazi-occupied Vienna. Okay. Steve Silverman's book, I'm going to be referencing his book a lot in this in this, in this podcast. It's called Neurotribes. Mm-hmm. Leo Connor was serving children, I believe it was 11 children in Baltimore, Maryland. And he saw autism as something that was very rare, that existed very narrowly. Mm-hmm. Conversely, Hans Osberger, he thought that autism was something that was very, that, that existed on a continuum. Hmm. But the problem was, A, we don't know the extent to which Hans Osberger was affiliated with the Nazis. We do know that he referred some of the children who he treated to clinics where children died. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Hans Osberger, what happened is his clinic was bombed during the war. Hmm. So a lot of his stuff was lost for years. So as a result, because Connor was was speaking, it was, it was an English-speaking world, his paradigm about autism became the default and became wow. the conventional wisdom. So knowledge about the autism spectrum is one of the hidden casualties of World War II. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> this is why we don't have wars, people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, this is where it gets really, really complicated. Leo Connor in his book, did, in his initial study, did write that while autistic children were born with an innate ability to form typical contact, he also wrote that there are very few really warm-hearted mothers and fathers of autistic children. He later told Time magazine that the children were, he studied were, quote, kept neatly in a fridge which didn't defrost. Oh. Those did kind of plant the seeds for what was later to be known as refrigerator parents, hmm. which was really popularized by Bruno Bettelheim. Hmm. And he basically, in his book, The Empty Fortress, said that basically the parents of autistic children wish the children didn't exist. Yeah. Bruno Bettelheim called it mother's black milk. Oh my God, Bruno, like if you use less inflammatory language, you know. <laughs> I know. It's not like you're selling like a novelty ice cream in Japan. <laughs> right, yeah, so you're saying that these treatments were more effective at thawing children out who had been frozen by their mother's black milk. Uh, okay, I, it's funny because I know Bruno Bettelheim as the author of The Uses of Enchantment, which is a book on fairy tales and i'm like oh yeah there he is yeah like maybe you should do your different fields on different days <laughs> this just strikes me as unnecessarily cruel to the mothers like even if you think that this is brought on by the mother's attitude or behavior like maybe calling them that isn't yeah. going to encourage them to do a better job maybe <laughs> what you're just asking them to to do essentially with that level of shaming is to just stash their children away. That was what led to a lot of autistic kids becoming institutionalized because oh. then they're being taken away from their unloving parents. In oh. fact, in uh, the 1960s, I believe, so Richard Rory Grinker cites this in his book, uh, Unstrange Minds. Mm-hmm. There is a movie called Change of Habit where Elvis plays a doctor with Mary Tyler Moore, who's a nun. Mm-hmm. One aunt takes uh, a child to the clinic and assumes the child is deaf, but then Mary 
Gray Tyler Moore says to Elvis, I think she's autistic. Elvis says, it's not going to work, Michelle. She's hiding a behind a wall of anger. It's not going to work. I'll take over her. We'll try rage reduction. And then oh. he tries to rid her of her autistic frustration. Oh, Elvis. Remember, this was at the time when there really was a very narrow definition of autism. Mm -hmm. These poor kids were sent away to institutions. Mm. What's interesting is that in the 1970s, there were all of these kind of consumer safety pushes, you know, unsafe at any speed. But autism as a result, because if it's seen as bad parents that are causing it, then it's not a public policy concern. You know what I mean? Right. That's fascinating. That's a really, yeah. yeah, that's such an interesting attitude of the time. And then I feel like, I mean, this is this is a theme that we come upon a lot, which is that People didn't used to talk about this. And the fact that there isn't a cultural imprint, aside from like weird, like Elvis one-liners occasionally, doesn't mean it wasn't there. Like the, the 50s weren't idyllic and people didn't like not have sex when they were married. Like yeah. we just created media that reflected that, you know, and we're just so easily fooled by that. This stuff was happening. It was just that they were being sent away. Right. Autistic people existed. We just didn't want to talk about it. This is so much like the history of like the discovery of childhood sexual abuse and people in the 70s being like, where did it come from? It's this new societal threat. And it's like, no, it just was always there because we we silenced people. We didn't talk about it. We minimized it. We acted like it was something that only affected a tiny percentage of the population, which of course is wildly untrue. You know, all very similar aspects in some ways. Much in the same way if we're going to keep on talking about Elvis, just in the same way that Elvis, <laughs> you know, upset parents because he brought sex out into the open. They were probably equally as upset about him talking about <laughs> autism in his movies. Yeah, they started to have suspicious minds. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's nice, Mike. Boom. Yeah. So for a long time, parents blamed themselves. And then what happens is the paradigm slowly starts to change, largely with the help of a guy by the name of Bernard Rimland, who is a father of an autistic child. And his book, Infantile Autism, really kind of leads to, debunk, to, to kind of a pushback to that idea mm -hmm. and helps relegate it. The problem is Rimland was one of the biggest promoters of the idea that vaccines might cause autism. And oh. it's important to recognize that this was going on before Andrew Wakefield. When does this book come out? This comes out in the 1960s. Okay. But then what also happens is that after Rimland's book comes out, a lot of parents start to coalesce and start to meet up. And he's one of the co-founding members of the autism, what later becomes the Autism Society of America, along with Ruth Christ Sullivan, who's incidentally the mother of one of the people who Rain Man was based off of. Oh. Rimland while he was correct in, you know, debunking that really, really toxic idea of toxic parenting, mm -hmm. he also was one of the people who promoted ideas like casein-free diets, oh, giving no. children high levels of B12 will helpfully make them not as autistic anymore. So mm -hmm. you have this kind of weird doom loop where Leo Connor is the first person to talk about autism, but he also plants the seeds for Bruno Brelheim's nonsense. Bernard Rimlin <laughs> debunks that. And, but then he also is one of the biggest promoters of these kind of quackery mm -hmm. cures and treatments for autism. So it's like, it's not this crank explanation, it's this other crank explanation. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's also important to remember that autism doesn't exist as a separate diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistic Medical Manual of Mental Disorders until 1980. Oh, really? Yeah. So gay people were in there, but autistic people weren't. Great stuff. Autism first appears on the DSM, DSM-1 in 1952 under schizophrenic reaction and childhood type. It mm. doesn't appear as separate from schizophrenia until 1980. Mm. Around that same time, Lorna Wing in the UK 
rediscovers Hans Osberger's work, mm. she also had an autistic daughter. So she knew the, 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 the parenting thing was rubbish, mm-hmm. as she would say. Mm-hmm. And she said in her, uh, in her 1981 article, Asperger Syndrome, a clinical account, that autism belonged in, quote, a wider group of conditions we have in which common impairment of development of social interaction, communication, and imagination. So really what happens is in the 1980s is when we get our understanding of it. Mm. Even then, mm-hmm. it isn't until 1994 that Asperger's Syndrome is – put into the DSM, and then it isn't until 2013 that all of it comes under the same umbrella of uh, what we now know as autism spectrum disorders. Right. All the while that we are having these kind of changes that are happening in the DSM, we're also changing our understanding of disability, and there's public policy that's being changed. So in 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act is passed. That is a historic piece of legislation, but I would argue there's also an equally important piece of legislation, which is Congress reauthorized what was then the Education for All Handicapped Children Act under a new title, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Specifically, IDA included autism. It was, quote, meant to establish autism definitively as a developmental disability and not as a form of mental illness. Hmm. And IDEA mandates that students with disabilities receive what's called a free appropriate public education. And that now finally applies to students with autism. But what it Mm. also means is that schools that receive federal dollars have to report the number of autistic students they served. Mm. So what that does is that leads to a spike in kids getting diagnosed because they're getting diagnosed at school. Mm. This was Mm -hmm. a net positive to see this many autistic people because we missed it. We missed it for a long time. Well, this is like the Me Too movement, right? Where there's this idea that like the world changed in 2017 or whatever. And it's like, no, it's just like all this had always been happening. There just, you know, was this sort of bloodletting of, of all these stories that had always been there. It seems like, it, you know, just reacting to social recognition of an experience as if the people with that experience are being created the moment you become aware of it seems like a consistent problem we have as yeah. like news consumers. There's also a consistent thing that we see in moral panics is this idea of a growing problem. And then yes. the minute you look into it, it's actually just a statistical artifact. Mm-hmm. Famously, Sweden is the rape capital of Europe because it has a much higher rate of reported rapes And that's because they have a different statistical method for counting rapes. They count the number of sex acts. So if you're in a marriage and your husband is raping you repeatedly, they'll count that as like 400 instances of rape, whereas other countries will count it as one instance of rape because there's one perpetrator. Mm -hmm. But then there's all this like moral panic shit about like Sweden's letting in immigrants and they have all these rapes. And it's like literally read a footnote, Uh, dude. At least this is stopping like angry reactionaries from going to Sweden. Like I'm kind of happy about that. Keep the alt-right out of Sweden. It's actually a fine outcome. Yeah. In the same way, I mean, like here's a sentence from uh, a book review in the New York Times that uh, about when you start to see this moral panic, this is a book review from, I believe, 2005. It says, beginning in the 1980s, the number of autism cases started to take off. The latest estimates are one child in 166 has some form of disorder with effects that range from mild to quote-unquote crippling. Mm. This piece called The Secrets of Autism came out right around the same time. Uh, it talks about 
The cases of autism and closely related disorders like Asperger's are exploding in number and no one has a good explanation for it. While many experts believe this increase is a byproduct of recent broadening of criteria, others are convinced that the surge is at least in part real and thereby a cause for grave concern. Championship both sides there. Yeah, this is like classic Time magazine writing of like, could it be this reasonable thing? Or perhaps... This unreasonable thing. We don't know. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems straightforward that, like, if there's literally a law that schools now have to report the number of autism cases that they're seeing, you're obviously going to get a massive spike in the reports of autism because there's now a law saying that it has to happen. Well, and also, like, as a school, if I'm running a school, right, if I'm like a crooked whoever's in charge of this thing. Could I possibly get additional funds by kind of fattening up my autistic kid numbers? Yeah. I, I should add that, like, IDEA, as good as it is, the federal government has never lived up to its commitment. Right. It only funds, like, I think 14% of the uh, of IDEA. Mm. So it's not even that much. But even then, like, can you imagine how much better things would be if the federal government lived up to its commitment? Well, also... As with so many things, there's probably so many kids that are sort of in a borderline area, yes. like could be yes, could be no. These kinds of laws give the incentive to sort of err on the side of let's assign that kid some sort of autism status so that we get the extra funding. Right. And then to the outside world, it's going to look like this avalanche yeah. of new, like, all oh, the kids are autistic now. And it doesn't have to be sinister either, because like, you know, yeah. if you're unsure, you're like, let's, you know, it's better to get funding for the kid, hopefully, yeah. than yeah. to deprive them of any additional help. Right. And, and I should add that, like, getting parents fighting for IEPs and things like that, mm -hmm. it's really, really difficult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is something that parents constantly have to fight with, fight with the schools yeah. with. I know my mom did. Mm -hmm. I do feel like it fits in with the sort of right-wing myth that you can say, like, I'm black, and then you'll immediately get accepted to Harvard. This is their conception of how affirmative action works. Yeah. And I think that they also have a conception that you can just stand up, be like, I'm disabled. And it's like, okay, you don't have to pass any tests ever again. And here's no. a giant envelope full of money. It's like my Scott going, I declare yeah, yeah, yeah. bankruptcy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Even if you are getting some sort of recognition of a disability, it's not like just money is raining from the ceiling and things get easy at that point. Yes. So the other thing that happened is after the IDEA and after the spike in diagnoses, there was a real chance that now that we knew what autism was, now that we were getting more people diagnosed, there was a real chance that we could actually help these people. Mm -hmm. Autism was for so long seen as a mental illness. So it wasn't part of the larger disability rights movement in the 1970s, like the sit-ins or, you know, the crawl up the Capitol, even though some people were autistic. So, like, they were largely excluded from that disability rights movement mm. because it's, up until this point, uh, disability was still really bipartisan. Mm. The IDEA was signed by George H.W. Bush, and it was done by voice vote in the Senate. So that means that it, that they, that it was so popular they didn't even need to keep, uh, keep track of who voted for it. Hmm. And then the vaccine theory basically throws this all out the window. Uh, I feel like this is like the pivot in the Scorsese movie where it's like yeah. Jimmy was cutting ties with everyone between him and Lufthansa. You're like, oh no, things seem so great for one second. Yeah. My understanding is that there was this like rogue British doctor who did the study or read the study and was like, by Jove, vaccines cause autism. I put in an accent because this is also depressing. <laughs> Just thought we could have a little fun. And so spread this theory that I believe on further analysis or competent analysis, 
had like very clearly no basis in fact, but it's the kind of thing where you get this like fossil of meaning. Yeah. People were ready to believe it. And then I believe Jenny McCarthy was of <laughs> some importance in like bringing this theory to a wider audience. For, or maybe that's just how I first heard of it. From Nazis to Jenny McCarthy, the story of autism. Yeah. <laughs> so in the 1980s, there, you know, there was talk about vaccines. Mm -hmm. There had been books like DPT, A Shot in the Dark. There had been fear that vaccines might be dangerous. Mm -hmm. The doctor's name was a guy by the name of Andrew Wakefield. This is in 1998. So he holds a press conference, which again, this sounds very, very British, so forgive me, at mm -hmm. the Royal Free Hospital on Hempstead in North London. <laughs> oh, you weren't kidding. It also came with an accompanying video <laughs> that said, researchers at the Royal Free School of Medicine may have rediscovered a new syndrome and causing inflammatory bowel disease and autism. And Wakefield was in a lot of ways very, very well equipped to this. He had studied Crohn's disease before. He was seen as a very, very credible person. Hmm. He was also very, very media savvy. He looked really handsome. He kind of played this role of this kind of, I'm this crusading doctor right. who is speaking for the children. And as you know, most of the times saying you're doing something for the children is like the perfect way to promote your... Wacky idea. Yeah. You get carte blanche if you claim to be acting for the children. It is a fantastic scam. And, and I should say that nowadays, Andrew Wakefield, he lives in the US, his current girlfriend is uh, L. McPherson, which is hilarious. Oh, oh God. L, you could do better. You dated Joey Tribbiani. <laughs> Wakefield basically argued that there was this idea called leaky gut syndrome, wherein vaccine particles prevented the breakdown of certain foods like wheat and dairy, which then pass through the walls of the gut, make their way to the brain, and cause autism. Oh, so it's supposed to be dairy in the brain. Sure. Then you would have much higher rates in Wisconsin. So Yeah, uh, incidentally enough, I got diagnosed, I first got diagnosed with stuff in Wisconsin. So Oh, well then there you go. I think that holds up the entire theory. We yeah. gotta get behind this Wakefield guy. But like the, the other thing that import, that's important to note, and Steve Silverman points it out, is that like a lot of autistic people like to eat a lot of the same stuff all the time. Oh. So like it would make sense that like eventually they might develop some gastrointestinal issues. So like if you want to eat the same spicy meatball every night. Then you can have a problem, yes. Mm -hmm. So you've also got the sort of the quote-unquote evidence that a lot of autistic kids are also experiencing like stomach aches and stuff. Yeah, so Wakefield got a call from a mother of an autistic boy Initially, he says he didn't know anything about autism. Mm -hmm. And then the mother explained that he, the, the kid had really bad bowel problems like diarrhea and incontinence. Mm. And that she said that he had been behaving really normally until he received the vaccine. Mm. And then, like I said, his controversial work on Crohn's had already made him a figure among anti-vaccine activists. So he already had the ground. The ground was already fertile for him. Right. And also, I mean, is the central evidence that you have this massive explosion in the number of autism cases at the same time as you have this massive explosion in the number of children receiving vaccines. Basically. It's this great graph line with the two lines going up at the same rate. Measles, mumps, rubella vaccines specifically. Yes. So like peer reviewers of the early draft were really worried about the city's language. Uh -huh. And the Lancet's editor 
He said, quote, published evidence is inadequate to show whether there is a change in incidence or a link with the MMR vaccine. So is this article published with a disclaimer? Is that what that is? Yes. Okay. But in the promotional video mm-hmm. and the press conference, he basically suggested that this was that his study was the latest evidence challenging the safety of the MMR vaccine. Mm. Wakefield really becomes this kind of crusading person on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Not only is it in the UK, but it's also in the US. And he's invited to testify before Congress. Mm. He testifies before the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. And the chairman of that is a guy by the name of Dan Burton. Mm-hmm. So Burton holds this hearing in 2000. Uh, and he talks about how his granddaughter nearly died after she received the hepatitis B vaccine. And nice. his grandson became autistic after he was vaccinated. And he said that there was some emerging evidence about a connection between vaccines and autism in some children and that mm-hmm. we can't close our eyes to this. And what's interesting is if you go back and you watch the actual video, a lot of members of Congress are like, we're glad that we're moving on from the idea that autism is caused by, by unloving mothers. Once again, it's like, we're doing something about autism. Right. Well, like, I want to, the whole time I've, I, like, when I watched the videos, when, you know, researching this, I was like, you guys did something about autism 10 years ago with the IDEA. Right. It was like Khrushchev banging my shoe on the desk or something. <laughs> so. There were a couple years there where this was sort of like seen as sort of worth asking the question. Didn't The Daily Show have an anti-vaxxer on? Yes. This was seen as, like you said, this might be worth looking into. I will say that in 2008, both Barack Obama and John McCain talked about it. Hmm. So like Obama says, I'm just quoting, he was speaking at a rally in Pennsylvania. He says, we've seen a skyrocketing autism rate. Some people are suspicious that it's connected to vaccines. Hmm. And he said, the science is inconclusive, but we have to research. Hmm. And, then, and then also to, to, to your point, Sarah, about Jenny McCarthy. So this is the really important thing. She has a son who's autistic and she says that she's done a lot of really crank things with her son, uh, including like putting him in a hyperbaric chamber, I think. She even co-authored a book with Andrew Wakefield in 2011 called Callous Disregard. Ooh. Those must have been interesting conference calls. And she's talked about uh, her uh, the vaccines giving her son Evan autism. Mm-hmm. She says in her interview with Oprah, the first thing I did, Google, I put in autism. I started my research. Mm-hmm. Something came up and changed my life that led me to the road to recovery, which said autism is reversible and treatable. Mm-hmm. So the name of the episode was called Mother's Battle Autism. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is really important to say because not only is she promoting bullshit, mm-hmm. the way both Oprah and Jenny McCarthy are framing the bullshit is also important because <laughs> it's not only that vaccines cause autism. It's that mothers have to fight autism, right. not fight to make the world better for autistic people, but battle autism. I actually have a really personal story about this. The first time I heard about vaccines and autism was on Larry King when he invited Jenny McCarthy. I remember asking my mom, I was like, did I become autistic because of the vaccines? And she was kind of puzzled because she was like, what are you talking about? Because I'd been diagnosed before all this stuff happened. I think I got mm-hmm. diagnosed in 1998 before Wakefield did his whole mm-hmm. shtick. So... Mm-hmm. It's funny that, like, my first public encounter with autism was through Jenny McCarthy promoting this garbage. Well, how did you feel, Eric? I mean, I feel like it's weird. It it, it always just makes me uncomfortable when parents talk about sort of the tragedy of their kids being who they are. Yeah. So at the time, I should say, when I was was 16 when I saw that, when I Mm -hmm. watched that. Initially, I thought, oh, cool. Somebody actually cares about this thing that I have because I was bullied a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I thought that, oh, maybe there's something worth looking into on this. 
And my feeling was, okay, if it's on CNN, then it has to be factual. This yeah. is something that we should at least look into in the veneer mm. of credibility. It gave yeah. credibility to a lot of this stuff. And it made it seem like this was an important thing to discuss. And I think that that was how it poisoned the well. And we're yeah. really still seeing the damage of it. I do think that period is really interesting because there were a couple years there before yes. all the Wakefield stuff got debunked. I just very much remember the sort of smug, we must ask this question, like for the purposes of free speech. I feel like it's it's all wrapped up in like South Park somehow. I was just thinking about South Park as you were saying that, yeah. I was thinking about South Park too, because I used to yeah. watch South Park a lot when I was younger. This is our like r- murders on the room morgue moment. Yeah. Like we all thought of South Park. <laughs> and it was very, I just feel like it was very sort of wrapped up in this idea that there's never any harm in asking a question. There's never any harm in saying Mm. something has to be looked into. There's never any harm in bringing up something over and over and over again, that as long as you're just asking the question, you're not necessarily making the argument. But of course, what we know now is that like asking a question does actually see that idea with the public and can have real effects, even if you're not necessarily saying, I know that vaccines cause autism. We must continue to investigate this question. Yes. Even though there's overwhelming evidence basically proving at this point that it isn't true, we mustn't, we must continue to fight, yeah. to battle autism. And it's like, I don't even think we should talk about battling cancer, honestly. Like, do, do you really want to sound, do you, do you want to be saying that, Kenny McCarthy? Yes. When there's really thin evidence for something and there's a potential for massive societal harm, maybe just fucking wait until more studies come out. Like, all we had at this point was essentially one study and a really specious correlation. Yeah. And it was like, just don't ask the, it's not worth asking the question right now. But then you get into this, like, free speech, like, I'm allowed to ask the question stuff. And like, you're allowed to, but you're a dick. Uh, So around this time of the talk about vaccines and autism and all of this, Bob Wright, who's the head of NBC Universal, his grandson, Christian, is diagnosed with autism. And as a result, him and Suzanne Wright, uh, his wife at the time, start Autism Speaks. Well, and what is Autism Speaks goals while we're talking about who they are? Autism Speaks was initially started to find, to basically look to find a cure for autism, and then it removed the cure from its language in 2016. Mm. Until 2015, the charity's position was, it remains possible that in rare cases, immunization may trigger the onset of autism symptoms in a child with an underlying medical or genetic condition. So basically, they at least gave a veneer of credibility to, well, this is one theory. This seems like a lot of rich parents. I honestly think it's a lot of rich people who think that they're doing the right thing. Mm. Where you don't actually have autistic people at the table, which for a long time they didn't have autistic people at the table, or at mm-hmm. least in the leadership on it. You're often not listening to the actual needs of autistic people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why a lot of autistic people really don't like Autism Speaks. Almost every autistic person I know doesn't like them. I think the thing is that they see autism as a charity as a charity and something to be dealt with and not right. as a specific identity and a group of people who deserve to be treated fairly and who deserve to be treated accepted in society. They've changed a little bit. So like mm-hmm. they you know, they, they don't talk about cure anymore, they don't talk about removing anymore for such a long time because they framed it in in a term of uh autism as a, as a tragedy that makes it real that's made it really really hard to uh for autistic people as a whole mm. so in fact uh they didn't they did an ad i'm gonna send it to you right now oh this is in 2009 okay we can do we can count down and do three two one go and i'll watch it together three two one go 
I am autism. I'm visible in your children, but if I can help it, I am invisible to you until it's too late. I know where you live, and guess what? I live there too. I hover around all of you. I know no color barrier, no religion, no morality, no currency. I speak your language fluently, and with every voice I take away, I acquire yet another language. I work very quickly. I work faster than pediatric AIDS, cancer, and diabetes combined. And if you are happily married, I will make sure that your marriage fails. Your money will fall into my hands, and I will bankrupt you for my own self-gain. I don't sleep, so I make sure you don't either. I will make it virtually impossible for your family to easily attend a temple, a birthday party, a public park, without a struggle, without embarrassment, without pain. You have no cure for me. Oh. Uh, it's not fatal. It's putting the parents' experiences first over the children. Yeah. It's almost literally autism saying, hello, I want to play a game. Yes! <laughs> I've seen episodes of Criminal Minds that are a lot less menacing than this. It's so fucking unethical to use real kids in this. It's just, it's framing autism like Freddy Krueger. Yeah. This kind of frames how they view dealing with autism. Right. Mm. And this is how they frame seeing autism as something to be battled or combated. And like, even if they, they had some success in 2006, the, um, the piece of legislation that was signed was the Combating Autism Act. Nice. And it wasn't until 2014 that it was changed to the Autism Cares Act. Mm. So it, it very much talks about how they how they framed it and how they saw autism as a menace. This makes me think of what if you made an ad that was like, I am menstruation. I am painful. <laughs> I have invaded the woman you love. Right. You know, and then it's like these all these like men swearing to to beat menstruation. Yeah. And I think that this is this goes to the idea that it was parents trying to do something for their kids. And it was more about how tragic autism was. And it's framed in the same idea that autism was this epidemic. And what do you do with epidemics? You try to curb an epidemic. Right. You got everyone to stay home and like, try. well, actually, apparently, if you have an epidemic, you all cram people into rallies and have them shout on each other. So <laughs> it isn't until 2010 that Wakefield is stripped of his medical license. So mm. you have from 1998 to 2010. Yeah. And does that happen for something unrelated just by happenstance? What happened is there was tons of inquiries and look and, and, and you know, investigations all started uncovering problems. Turns out that two of the kids who uh, were reported to have suffered from uh, autistic enterocolitis after the MMR had never been diagnosed with autism at all. Mm. And then Wakefield had also made sure that children in the study who had previously been described as normal before receiving the vaccine had actually been flagged for development to issues, issues like hand flapping and language delay. So he was just really careless. Right. So vaccines cause autism, but some of the kids aren't autistic. Yeah. And some of the other kids were showing signs of autism before they were vaccinated. Mike, vaccines cause kids. All right. We do know <laughs> yeah. this. What really brings this into stark contrast is that Wakefield had been paid. Mm. He had failed to disclose to the editors from the Atlanta that he had received a lot of compensation from lawyers who were planning to mount a class action lawsuit against against vaccine manufacturers. Oh. This kind of horror, David versus Goliath, fighting the evil Goliath of capitalism, Big Pharma, was actually big law capitalism. Nice. Yeah. 
I mean, certainly in America today, we have no further experience with what seem to be grassroots movements, but are actually strategically manipulated causes that serve the needs of some sort of corporation or profit-seeking group. But basically the point is he was making a lot of money by doing this. Right. Everything came tumbling down. I am curious about where we incorrectly perhaps draw the line between like the child being a problem and the society that doesn't support parents and that makes almost any form of parenthood incredibly punishing and potentially financially disastrous. The first place I always want to take that is like, how do we support the family? Like, is society supporting this family? And like, what support do they need? Yeah. And of course, the answer is often like money, money right. for kids. <laughs> autistic people need you to support them. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is what I this is what I keep on trying to say. I say this is an autistic person. I say this is somebody who loves autistic people is that we're human beings we are fine as just as we are. What really needs to happen is changing the world to adapt so that autistic people can live in it. Right. I was born in 1990, the year the ADA and the um, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act passed. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm so inspirational. or think that autistic people are so inspirational if they can do this. But it's a lot less sexy to say that autistic people are having a difficult time because the world sucks because it puts more onus on them. Whereas if autistic yeah. people are just inspirational or angelic, then it doesn't cause us to change anything. Oh, so you're like a murdered girl at this point. It's like, yeah. isn't she such a tragic angel? And it's like, she died because of very preventable and endemic violence against women. And like, this could have been predicted. It's like, right. we would rather like see people as tragic figures who like, you know, just so noble, so brave, and just completely unrelated to my choices. It's interesting. Yeah, it's like, you know, my whole point, I mean, I'm a political reporter at heart, is that we are a product of policies. The only way I am able to even do this is because of policies like the ADA and the IDEA. Mm -hmm. And they're not Mm -hmm. even fully funded. They're not even fully realized. Well, and also it takes away the concept that private donors can privately fund their own solution. And that you can just disrupt government and make your own spaceship and stuff. Right. There's also an interesting generational handover story, right? In the yes. in previous times when we did have fewer diagnoses of autism and it was really the much more severe cases, the kind of the quote-unquote movement was led by parents. Yes. Whereas after these laws in 1990, you now have a generation of people who self-identify as autistic and are finally able to sort of form the movement themselves and take the movement in the direction that they want. So it feels like we're in the midst of this like handover. So you're partially right. The, initially, it was parents being told that they need to send their kids away to these institutions. Mm-hmm. Then the second part, I would say, from like the 1970s to the 1980s and 1990s, was parents trying to get their kids out of institutions. Mm. But because, like you said, the most vocal parents were the ones who have kids with the most support needs, they became seen as the real spokespeople. Right. And then now you're seeing that even autistic people like myself, but that even autistic people with higher support needs who can now speak for themselves because of things like assistive communication, mm. they're now trying to reframe the narrative. Right. Do we want to talk about sort of where the anti-vax movement went after Wakefield stuff was debunked? Because it is amazing how resilient it is considering 
that like the entire basis of it has now been completely destroyed. Yeah, isn't it weird that people believe things for which there is no evidence and only <laughs> proof of the opposite? Like it's such a I've never heard of that happening <laughs> elsewhere. The, the classic point is that Donald Trump said that on the debate stage about autism being an epidemic five years after Wakefield lost his license. Right. What mm. I think has happened now is that oh, as that Wakefield and a lot of these other people now see themselves as martyrs, mm-hmm. heroes, and brave truth tellers. Can you tell us about just where the anti-vax movement, I suppose, or like that culture, like where it is, like what is its health, what kind of organism is it right now? I think for a long time, anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists were very much, it was very kind of a horseshoe mm. because you had kind of crunchy liberals who didn't like vaccinating their kids and putting toxins in their kids, to your point about toxins. Mm-hmm. And then you had conservatives who just don't like government mandates. This is one of those Oregon country fair to Salem gun show issues. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think nowadays it's become a lot more right wing. Yeah. You see anti-vaxxers running in Republican primaries in Texas. In many ways, I feel like it fertilized the ground for QAnon. I mean, it is like worth noting that this has a toll. Like I did work on this for a story months ago and the number of measles cases in the United States used to be like 60 in the entire country and it's now like 1,200. (laughs) That's bad. Like there are communities, there's a place outside of Seattle, Fashion Island, which is this really rich kind of enclave that you have to take a ferry to get to. And as of 2015, one in five kids in the schools was not vaccinated. Oh my God. That's bad. It's so weird how like rich, kooky people and prisons are like these two populations that some epidemics are going to be able to rip right through. Like that's a weird thing to have in common by choice. It's almost like rich people almost feel like they're too rich to participate in the social contract. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I think that explains a lot. And also too rich for their bodies to fall victim to like poor people disease. Like I think there's something like there was something in like the very early days of AIDS that scientists and people trying to wrap their heads around the disease like originally rejected the concept that it could be transmitted to babies through cord blood. Yeah. And part of the pushback was like, it's a gay man's disease. Homosexuals get it. How could a baby get it? It's like, it's people get it. I also (laughs) think that there's a media story here too, though, in that the anti-vax movement is primarily a right-wing movement, but Mm. because that's kind of like a dog bites man story at this point, like right-wing people have crazy conspiracy theory that isn't as interesting to report on. So I do think that communities like Fashion Island that are like these super left-wing enclaves with like a bunch of yes. crunchy granola hippies, those things just get much more media attention. Yes, yeah, because it used to be, like you said, it used to be like people on the fringes of both sides. But now it's because, I think, oddly enough, I think that the Trump presidency has made it even more of a right-wing venture. Mm. There's something so appealing about these like very tight and easy stories, especially when there's sort of societal correlations involved. Yes. Where it's like, the vaccines rose at the same time as autism rose. And it's like, well, A, autism isn't quote unquote rising in this kind of one-to-one way. And secondly, there's literally a million other things that change in society during that 20-year period. Like if you look at sort of the, the rising crime rates in America in the 1980s, match perfectly with the fall of vinyl records. And as disco fell too. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like there's literally an infinite number of things happening in America at that same time. And you could draw the same parallel trend line 
along the rise of autism rates with a million other things. The number of hours B. Arthur is on prime time in a given year. Sure. We see this with a lot of social issues, too, that, you know, as like trans rights become more accepted, there's a growing number of trans people because people are comfortable coming out. And Mm -hmm. that, of course, is seen by reactionaries as somehow a threat to society. Like, oh, my God, the number of trans kids is growing. And it's like, that's actually good news. And you can say that all of these extra diagnoses of autism since the 1980s, that's good. That means kids are getting the help that they need. Or like maybe if we actually see the rise in autism rates, then maybe we could put more money to schools and special education, disability education and things like that. So like maybe maybe it's not a reason for a moral panic, but it's a reason Hmm. that we can probably make schools better for disabled kids. This is actually, this is how I feel about my kitchen, which is if I'm like, Sarah, you're going to do dishes. And then I let go and I'm like, oh my God, like, why did I save all of these cottage cheese containers? And now I have to clean them. And why am (laughs) I saving them? But I can't throw them out. I would be, you know, and then I'm like, fuck it. I'm watching Mad About You. If every time you try and engage, like you just focus on like, the overwhelmingness of it and Mm. are like, what does this say about me? And it's like nothing. It says nothing. Everyone has dishes. Every country has kids who need more help than you've been giving them to this point. Just like deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. I have not done my dishes. Yeah. Like, I mean, (laughs) it says that you like cottage cheese, Sarah. That's all it says about you. It does say that, which is pretty damning according to some people, but you know, I stand by it. I think what I want to say essentially is that, I mean, the thing that I always keep on saying is that the only way that we can get people to accept autistic people is through funding schools, you know, having a robust social safety net so that they can succeed. All of these things that require a lot of work and also require us listening to autistic people. They are who they are. They've always been there. We just mm. haven't wanted to listen to them. That's a good note to end on, Eric. Thanks yeah. so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I loved doing this. Thank you. And. I, you know, I know that we're just, I guess, going to be having at least six moral panics at any given time forever. I accept that. And I'm happy that we got to have you on to talk about one of them because you are smart and being a, a watch, one of the many watchdogs that this world requires. And it's just great to have people come and talk about you know, what they are watching. Thank you. Thank thank you for this. I mean, I put in a lot of hard work on this and I put in a lot of work on, on, on this book. Wait, and do you want to say again, just um, what is your book called? When is it out? My book, uh, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation, comes out August 3rd. It's a Leo. Your book's a Leo. Pre-order it uh, on IndieBound or your local bookshop. If you want to, okay, fine, Amazon. <laughs> yeah, we hope you make enough money on the book that you can move to one of those enclaves where people don't vaccinate their kids. Uh, That's the dream. I hope that you can achieve the millennial dream, which is having as many streaming services as your heart desires. <laughs> <laughs>